the editorial sensibility is the creative beating heart of a publishing company. That's the beginning and the end of it, I think. And everything else is incredibly important. But if you don't have that beating heart, you don't have the company. And to get that confidence to be that heart takes years. And so I've loved being part of the process of watching young women develop that and then go on. This is the Visible Voices podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word about Rebel EM. Rebel EM stands for Rational Evidence-Based Evaluation of Literature in Emergency Medicine. We are a website that helps you keep up with the latest and the greatest, cut down knowledge translation time, and improve patient care. Hi, listeners. Thanks for joining, and I am so glad to bring you my conversation with Alexandra Pringle. Alexandra is based in London, England. However, where we spoke, where we recorded this conversation was Dhaka, Bangladesh. She and I were speaking and serving on panels at the 10th annual Dhaka Lit Fest. As means of background, Alexandra was editor-in-chief of Bloomsbury Publishing for 20 years. She's now the executive publisher. She began her career on the art magazine Art Monthly, then joined Virago Press. There she edited the Virago Modern Classics series. She had a time at Hamish Hamilton, and she joined Bloomsbury in 1999. Her list of authors is extensive, and I'm just going to name, highlight a few here. Elizabeth Gilbert, Esther Freud, Margaret Atwood, Khalid Husseini, Jumpa Lahiri, the 2017 Man Booker Prize for Lincoln and the Bardo, George Saunders, and the 2021 Nobel Prize in Literature, I wanted to say it like that right there, Literature, Abdul Razak Gurna. Now let's get to the conversation where, when we begin, Alexandra is talking about independence and what she learned from her mother. For so many women, the two world wars were incredibly liberating and absolutely changed their lives. And for my mother, she got away from her oppressive father who refused to educate her and made her leave school when she was 16. She met lots of very interesting people. She had an incredible time. And then after the war, the government used to give grants to people who'd served. And she um, got together a portfolio and went to art school. So everything came as a result of that. Uh, How else did the independence manifest? I think, uh, well, one of the things my mother used to say to me is, you must never run away and you must stand on your own feet. And um, I failed a lot when I was at school. I was a very, very bad student. And I didn't work. I was... It's not so much lazy, but I was disconnected and I didn't like institutions naturally. I never have done really. And um, what I did though, when I finally learned to read, I was about the last person in my class to learn to read, but I discovered the incredible joy of books. So I just read and read and read. And so instead of studying, I read fiction. And of course, what I didn't understand was I was really preparing for the rest of my life. Um, And so... I had to kind of pick myself up. I failed to get into university. And my my mother said, well, why don't you learn to to type, basically? Because she had, he had done that. She said it's incredibly useful. And she sent me off to a secretarial course in Cambridge. And I, I did that. I hated every second of it. But it, she was right. It was absolutely incredibly useful not the shorthand I forgot it immediately but the typing was brilliant and knowing how to lay out a letter you know all those things nobody's taught that anymore but you know you want things to look good and um, 
and I discovered they were doing they did degrees but I you know I I think the thing of failing in your life I I learned very early on how to deal with failure and I think that helps you with independence as well you know and you just realize you have to rely on yourself and and also I didn't have financial support you know when I left home I had to earn a living and um and I also didn't want to earn a living for the sake of it I always wanted to do something that mattered to me yeah. What's amazing is people may look at you, read about you, see you, um, 70 years old, and, oh, what do you mean she failed? What do you mean she didn't get in? What do you mean she didn't have financial support? And to what extent do you normalize this concept of failure so that people can really understand the full human experience? I've always thought that failure is a part of the of the embroidery of our lives. And when I talk to students, I always talk about it because I think that people fear failure and in a way that the more blessed you are when you're young, the harder it is when the when the failures come when you're older. And I know young women in their 30s who have flown through school and university and first jobs and succeeded and then something happens in their life, like they fail to get pregnant or they have a hiccup in their career and they're devastated by it. Whereas I think in a way I learned a kind of endurance and I think endurance is a really important part of life. Circling back to books, uh, Achebe, Things Fall Apart, seems to have been an awakening for you. It had the most extraordinary effect on me. My father gave it to me when I was a young teenager. I was 14 or 15, and he would always go to West Africa in the summers. He was a teacher and he to earn some money. So my parents always found it difficult to just keep things going um, because, sadly, teachers are very underrated and underpaid. And he used to go, and he loved West Africa. He was in the army in the King's African Rifles, so he, he, he loved that part of the world. And and he would go, and then he'd come back, and we were always thrilled, and he'd have a suitcase full of beads and indigo cloth and so on. And one day he brought, one year, he brought me Things Fall Apart, because he and I were readers. He was an English teacher. and um, And it was extraordinary reading it, because... It just changed everything. It made me realize that that the world is so different from people's different people's eyes and different places in the world. And the narratives that we receive are, are just one narrative, and that there are so many more out there. And it it was a, a complete revelation. And it made it opened my eyes, and it made me, I think, help me become a much more international person. Your love affair with books. It continued from your teens into into your adulthood. Walk us through that. Well, it, it, it actually started when I learned to read, finally. Um, and I used to go to the local library and just take out dozens of books and read and read and read. And um, it, 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 well, it's this magical thing, reading. You know, it's, it's, uh, I, I feel very sorry for people who don't get that bug in their life because it, it's such an incredible gift. And it, it always just felt like it was my journey. It was my thing, you know, not being told by school or an adult what you should be doing. You know, it was up to me and I would read things that were much too old for me and the librarian would say, I don't think you want to have that. And I'd say, yes, I do. And then, yeah, so there I was as a teenager. When I finally did get to do a degree course, it was in English and English history. But that that wasn't, for me, very exciting. In some ways, the history was more interesting to me. Um, so, as I say, I think it's always been a personal journey for me, which has been a very important part of being a publisher. So 
When I left college, I went first of all to Italy. I went to Florence and taught English for a year because, you know, like so many young women, you want to have that experience. And then I came back and I thought, okay, I want to work in publishing. Um, and I um, was teaching English as a foreign language and living in one room in Whitechapel in the East End, which is a, then a poverty-stricken bit of London. Interestingly, it was full of um, uh, Bangladeshi people and sweatshops, clothing sweatshops, and I got a room with a sweatshop underneath me, an old Irishman, no bathroom. Um, there was a shared lavatory and a sink, which was broken, and I used to have to get washed in a plastic basin. So um, that it was quite a kind of Dickensian life, and certainly that bit of London was very Dickensian. And I, <clears throat> I got a job for five pounds a week, which was nothing then, working on an art magazine, um, and that as an editorial assistant. And that was incredibly. I had a wonderful two years, but I was so poverty stricken. And then I got married for the first time. I have been married three times. I and my first marriage was to an artist who, of course, had absolutely no money. And so I thought, well, I better do something about that. And I realized it's been an absolute pattern in my life that I've always been the major support of any household I've been in, financial support. And I do feel that for women, money is power. And um, to rely on somebody else particularly a man for money is a, I think a very bad thing I think that that aspect of independence is absolutely crucial um, so I said to my boss I'm I, I need to get another job I need to earn more and he said that he lived next door to one of the founders of Virago Press and he said they're looking for a part-time assistant and if you stay on part-time with me and get this job would that work for you and I said absolutely um, so I went to Steve to have my interview with Carmen Khalil, who is the founder of Virago. And um, I remember walking up five flights of stairs in Soho, very insalubrious bit of Soho between sort of sex shops and pinball arcades. And I got the job. And so I started. That was my beginning in book publishing. Yeah. Audience members may not be familiar with the history and the importance of Virago. Virago was and still is, but then was an absolutely extraordinary enterprise. And it was founded by Carmen Khalil and another woman called Ursula Owen. Carmen died very recently. Um, and it was one of the very first feminist presses in the world. But very importantly, it was also founded with a determination to work financially and not be reliant on grants or, and to be successful. Carmen wanted it to be successful. When I joined Virago Press, um, the Virago Modern Classic series had just been founded. And the point of that series was to rescue from obscurity works by women that had been forgotten because women's writing had largely been forgotten. And there were, you know, there were obvious classics like Jane Austen and George Eliot and so forth. But, you know, the, all the other things, the, the, the books that we were all brought up on that were published in the early 1900s and, and so so on until the 1960s were pretty much all by men. And many of the books that we published at Virago were books that actually my mother had given me to read when I was a child or a teenager. People like Rosamund Lehman and Antonia White and Sylvia Townsend Warner. Wonderful books. And 
they had a sort of library look to them. They had paintings on the front. They were beautiful books, and they kind of revolutionized the way people thought about literature and the canon. And that was very exciting. And also, Ursula Owen was in charge of doing the um, very important list of women's history and politics and sociology. So it had, you know, Vraga had different sides to it, but it was best known for the modern classic series. And I started off as the office skivvy, we called it, or even worse things that I can't say. <laughs> and after a few months, Carmen said to me, I need you full time, so you're either going to leave or come full time. And I left the blissful happiness of this art magazine and I knew it was going to be very tough because Carmen, to be honest, was a bully. She was a terrifying woman and she was really hard, hard, hard on all her staff and there were only three of us apart from her and I was the least senior so I was very easy to bully. But I also knew that I, that I had to do it and that the enterprise was so important and for me, working on something that mattered was in a way more important than my personal happiness. Um, and, you know, I had been taught by my mother that endurance was important and, and just being kind of, not steely, but, but, but tough, you know. So, so I went full time. I remember standing in the street um, after my goodbye drinks from Art Monthly and crying and just knowing I wouldn't have so much fun for a long time. And... It was really, really tough, and I did a year, and I used to I used to wake up crying. I was so frightened. I was frightened to go into work. And in fact, after a year, I felt that I had lost pretty much all sense of who I was. And so I decided to um, apply to university to do postgraduate. And I think that was partly because I did have a bit of a chip on my shoulder because I'd been rejected. And I got taken on by two um, colleges in London, and one of them was University College London, and the professor over there was the most extraordinary man called Carl Minner, who was the founder of the London Review of Books, a founder and editor. And so he was Lord Northcliffe Professor at UCL, and he was editor of the London Review of Books, and he took me on. And that was a big life-changing experience because he in a way, helped rebuild my sense of self. And he was very kind to me, and he was very interested in me. But I continued part-time at Virago's. So Carmen said, OK, you can be part-time. So she was sort of holding on to me, which was interesting. And I needed to fund myself. So I had a couple of years of doing that. So that sort of took me through my 20s. So I was sort of you know, looking back on it, I think I was much more focused than I had felt because at the time I had so little confidence. And I think that for women, confidence is hard won. And I always say to young people, just give yourself time. And I think that women hit their stride in their 30s. I think the 20s are their strange old years, you know, and they're, they're to be they're to be lived through, but also um, to be to be experienced. Um, but it, I think, you know, you're often, people are often quite unhappy in their 20s. But life is long if you're lucky, and, you know, things change. You ultimately to Bloomsbury. Yes, so I, I would say I was at, at Virago as a man and child. I, I grew up there, and I was there for 12 years, and I ended up being, I was made a director when I was 30, 
and I and editor of the Mo- Modern Classic series, and I ended up we we were sold to a company, and it's very complicated, and I won't go into it. it's too it's too complicated, but we ended up doing a management buyout, and I was part of the management team, and that was a huge growth experience for me, and I had just had my first child, so I was thirty three came back to work after three months. All I wanted was a quiet life and to deal with motherhood. And we start, and I, day one back at work, we started doing the management buyout. And the next thing is I was meeting with venture capitalists and accountants and writing with Ursula, the business plan. And so that was a big, big growth time for me and very, very stressful too. Important, important lessons in leadership. Yes. Uh, yes, and I just was thrown into it, and I had to do it. And I think that that is the other thing is, and when I, as an employer, for years, I I have always dumped a lot on the young women. They've almost always been young women, who've worked for me. And if they're smart enough, and you know they'll make mistakes, and some of them are expensive, but it's not the end of the world. But it, you see, you witness a huge growth if if people have a lot of stuff landed on them, and they're not they're not coached through it you know they just have to work it out because that's what happened to me and it was very very good and so I ended up as owning you know something like eight percent of Virago and and being part of this management team and that was incredible but at the end of the time um, we were backed by Rothschild's Ventures and they wanted to shake up the management team and they wanted half of us to leave. They said we were stale, we've been together too long. It's a really extraordinary meeting. And they asked me to take over running it editorially and it would mean my beloved boss, Ursula, would have to go. I was given a week to think about it. And it amazingly, in that week, I was offered a job somewhere else. And I had always felt that because Virago is very separate from the big publishing world, that I was invisible. And I had begun to think that I should leave anyway because I was in my late 30s and I thought, you've got to grow up and you've got to step out into the unknown. Otherwise, you're going to cling on to safety all your life. And it was the job was as editorial director at Hamish Hamilton, which is a very literary imprint within the Penguin Group. And so it was the perfect list for me because it always mattered to me very much that wherever I was I was working on books that I cared about that's been the sort of number one thing and I would always have prefer to have no money but a wonderful list to work on than a lot of money and books that didn't connect with me so I took that job. You were a literary agent and obviously you've worn the hat of publisher and you know which did you enjoy more? I like them both you know because they are, it's not so much, in those days I thought of myself as an editor rather than a publisher and what mattered to me was my authors and my books and as an agent what matters to you is your authors and their books and as an agent the simple thing is that the only thing that matters is, is the author so everything you do is for the author. When you're, at, when you're within a publishing company, when you're an editor you have to balance your author and the needs of the company and you're the in a way the intermediary you're the the peacemaker the um as well as the engine behind the books which is very exciting so i i quite like the intimacy of the relationship with authors and also the freedom of being a literary agent because you can do what the hell you like there's no one to tell you you can make up your day you can make up your list and you don't have to have balance of any sort but it's what i missed was the process of publishing which i love and really sort of literally creating the book yourself with your own two hands. 
and you're more powerless in that way as an agent. You can you can intervene, you can help, but um, but you don't have that power. But you, I continue to edit, so I've always had um, relationships that have been closely editorial with with my authors. You've described this relationship that you develop with authors as almost a marriage of sorts. It is. It is. Well, at its best. I mean, some of the marriages are longer and some are shorter. But the ones that, you know, some of the the most rewarding relationships I've had in my whole life have been with authors who've been with me for decades. And to take someone on at whatever stage, but but in particularly a young, very young writer's and I would say women writers on the whole, um, uh, from their tentative beginnings and being part of their their growth and their progress and, and watching them grow and flower is so wonderful. It's an incredible experience. Yeah. Um, you said about your relationship with Abdul Razak Gurna and basically that, and I'm paraphrasing, that you'd almost given up in that, like, you believed in him, you took him on, his works are beautiful, his attention to words. And um, it was the year for a booker, and his name wasn't on, ultimately. And then within a very short period, the Nobel Prize was announced. Well, it was extraordinary. I, I had not, he'd always been revered by people. And he had been shortlisted for the Booker Prize with the, a previous novel before he came to me, Paradise. So he had recognition, absolutely, but not as wide as I felt he deserved. And I really felt, and actually, in a way, this begins with Things Fall Apart, that in the sort of canon of, of African literature, but all of literature, he was very, is very important. And when... We published Afterlives at Bloomsbury, which was the most recent book of his. I knew it was one of his greatest works as well, and that was very, very exciting. And Black Lives Matters had just happened, and the chair of the Booker Prize that year was an astonishing woman who's a um, a black publisher and somebody who I knew would know his work. Um, so I actually pulled his publication date forward by months to make sure that it would go into the Booker Prize. And I never believe that prizes are going to happen. I'm really superstitious about them. But this time I thought, he's going to get at least on the long list. And then when he didn't, I was pretty devastated. And then a few months later, there was an article in the Guardian newspaper and the headline said, reinventing the canon of black literature. And I thought, great, this Abdul Razak will be written about here. And the people writing it were all black writers. They were Ben Ogri and uh, Bernadine Evaristo and so forth. Not one mention, not one mention of Abdul Razak. And I very rarely rant on social media, but I did. I, I posted on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter that I was really fed up. And literally five days later, I was in a meeting, an online meeting, and it flashed up on my screen that he'd won the Nobel Prize. There had never been a whisper of his name. It wasn't as if there had been rumours. And I just burst into tears. I just sobbed. It was such an incredible thing. And the thing that makes me so happy is that when we published Afterlives, there was only one other edition of that book in the whole world, and that was a Turkish edition. And now I think he signed about 50 contracts for different different languages all over the world. So, you know. Quote, it was the greatest happiness of my professional life. Yeah, it was. 
Where does your commitment to underrepresented authors, marginalized communities play a role in uh, who you've signed, who you've worked with, and how you've, t- how you've grown people professionally? Looking back, I realized that I was just doing it instinctually. It was not through... Uh, then the, You know, the world has changed, and people th- quite rightly think very carefully about these things. But when I kicked off, it was entirely instinctual. I have to say most of my life, I think, has been instinctual. So when I was doing the Modern Classic series um, at Virago, I started a little mini-series within. So I did one on black writing, and I published Zora Neale Hurston and Nella Larson and Dorothy West and Anne Petrie. No one was much interested. They really weren't. Um, But I was very proud of those books. So that was back in the 1980s. And, And in the UK, you know, there was really no interest at all, I have to say. And I also did um, a series of Irish writers. I did one of Jewish writers, which I found very interesting, Anzia Yazeska, um, G.B. Stern, who wrote a sort of Forsyte saga, a kind of Jewish Forsyte saga, which I thought was fascinating. I didn't really even know I was Jewish then. That was so interesting. Um, so I was working in that way without, without, without any kind of knowledge of what I was doing. And then after that, when I moved into general publishing, it was that thing of me wanting I, wanting to find voices that told us about different lives and different gave us different stories. But I also am very interested in the way that the English language, which is such an elastic and wonderful language, is used so differently um, in different on different continents. So this is a language that has colonized the world, and yet it has been taken up and molded differently by you know by different countries. And I think that is a a wonderful thing. So Indian writing and African writing, um, and then you know people like Khaled Hosseini, you know who bring who write choose to write in English. Um, it's it, it's so interesting to see what it is that they do with this rich and and malleable language. And so I love that. So it's a, both a kind of cultural thing and a and a linguistic thing that excites me, but also it's just the richness of telling different stories. Yeah. What do you think is behind that decision deliberately to write in English? I, I think it's different for, for every person. Abdul Razak's really interesting about it. Because he said it was the language he read in because when he was a child, there weren't books in Swahili. There was almost nothing. So his reading was an English experience, and so it became a natural language for him to use. He didn't make a big decision. It was just how it happened. And I think that's generally the case. I mean, I think there are people who choose to write in English because it is more accessible to a larger a larger part of the population. And I think it, it is difficult for people who write in a, in a language that confines your audience. Um, and luckily, there are wonderful publishers like New Directions who whose sort of whole thing is to is to publish translation. But certainly in the UK, there's a great resistance to reading translation. I don't know why, but it is. It's also harder as a publisher because if you don't have the language yourself, you don't really know what you're taking on. You have to rely on very good readers and you have to have a sort of incredible um, access to a huge amount of expertise. And that is a skill of its own. And if you're a general publisher, you don't have that skill. So, you know, there are lots of things that are involved with that, but I think for writers, the English language does give them the possibility of reaching 
so many more people. Yeah. Riffing a bit on accessibility, um, I witnessed a panel you sat on recently, and, and the question centered around e-readers, uh, the Kindle. And I think surprisingly, uh, the audience expected that you would be anti, but you were quite supportive of. Oh, yes. I, I'm a real supporter of, of e-books. I, I mean, I wish it wasn't just one company pretty much that that owns them. And I, I think that that, you know, would love for that to change. And I think it probably will. But I think that I think that reading digitally is very democratic and that's a really important thing. And saying that books have to be beautiful things and, and in print and um, is, is like saying, well, you have to be able to afford it. You have to have access to the books. There are lots of countries where there aren't bookshops or hardly any bookshops. And like in India, a lot of people read on their telephones. Everybody has a, has a phone and people can read on a phone. And what matters is it's the words that matter. It's not the format. And I love a book and I love a book to look beautiful and I like to have a wonderful jacket. But also I love my, I love my Kindle. And as you get older, you can make the type as large as you want. So it makes the reading experience good. And also you can't fit as many books, you know, you get too many books in your life. I live on a houseboat and I have to chuck out books. So you can own, you know, thousands of books on an e-reader and you don't have to find space. For so you were bullied, you had a boss that was a bully and you have now been a boss, although recently retired. So and how would you describe yourself as a boss, as a leader? I, I believe in in mentorship and, and not structured mentorship, but I, I, I believe in I've I've had relationships with people who have started as my assistant and have been with me for, for years. And then I continued my contact with them because, of course, they develop into into deep friendships. And being a publisher is a very long slow business being an editor not other bits in publishing you can learn how to be a publicist or a salesperson very quickly can rise up the tree but with editorial it's a it's a very very slow business because a lot of it is about finding what who you are what your taste is and then getting the courage and confidence to back it because that's the the editorial sensibility is the creative beating heart of a publishing company that's the beginning and the end of it I think and everything else is incredibly important but if you don't have that beating heart you don't have the company and to get that confidence to be that heart takes years and so I've loved being part of the process of watching young women develop that and then go on um, and I I, what I think is also very important in working life is fun. And I think that the sort of day-to-day -day contact and just gossip and jokes and also I've really encouraged people to come out, go to authors' readings, to festivals, make it part of their social life. I, I don't think you can be a really good publisher and separate your work and your and your personal life. I'm afraid I think the two things are absolutely inexplicably combined. Yeah. There are a lot of articles these days on the future of work. And, you know, what are your thoughts on the virtual versus in-person? Oh, I can't tell you how I hate the virtual. I loathe it. And I know that the good side of it is that people can live in different places. And, for example, in the UK, London has always been, everybody's had to work in London and now people are moving outside and it's better for the regions. 
I get that. But I think it's so uncreative. And at Bloomsbury, we've only gone back two days a week. And I feel very sad, and particularly for young people, because you learn your job by being in a room with the older people, being in meetings, and virtual meetings are dead. They're completely dead. You can't have arguments, which I think are really important, you know, real discussion. You can't also have jokes. You, you can't have a joke on a virtual meeting. So what basically happens is one or two people seize power in the meeting, and it's horrible. It's like a dictatorship. And everybody else is silenced and literally have their cameras off most of the time. And I think it's no way to work. Certainly no creative business should work like that. I feel very strongly about it. We've discussed that publishing uh, is a very good career for women. There are a lot of women in it. And also not many rise to leadership, uh, similar to your position. Um, how would you describe the industry for listeners that are wondering, well, is it like medicine? Is it like law? Is it like banking? I think it's better, probably, than those those industries um, because women are very, very good at publishing and always have been. I, I think for all sorts of reasons, one of which is the thing that we can do a lot of things at the same time. And being a really good publisher, you have to be working on books that are being published now next month, next year, 10 years time. And you you have to do a million different things at the same time. So we're just endlessly juggling. Um, but I think that it is harder to get to the top. And I wouldn't say that I, I'm an example of someone who did that because I got to the top editorially. But I'm, I, I've had bosses. I have, you know, and I haven't been the person who's made the financial decisions, and I've not wanted to be that. And on the whole, they've been men, um, and very good men. But if you look, I remember when I worked in the Penguin Group, I published Marilyn French's War Against Women, and for a sales conference presentation, I drilled into the whole, so Penguin was owned by Pearson, and I... I looked at the whole structure and, of course, right at the bottom, they were almost all women. And then they just got fewer and fewer as you went up. And then at the board level of Pearson, I think there was one woman. And I think it's the same in most companies. But nevertheless, I think that publishing is a place where women can flourish. Your legacy. I have no idea what that is. (laughs) I suppose my legacy is really just the books that I've published and the ones that will that I hope will stick around, that there will be some that will still be read in 10 and 20 years. And they go from Abdul Razak and Nobel Prize winner or Kamala Shamsi, Women's Prize winner, to someone like Madeline Miller, whose Song of Achilles I took on with such excitement and such joy. But who would ever know that the TikTok revolution would kick off this extraordinary thing that has meant that we've sold one and a half million copies of Achilles and a million of Circe you know or indeed when I took on Elizabeth Gilbert's Eat Pray Love and no one wanted that book no one at Bloomsbury apart from my assistant and no bookseller no journalist no one and then four years later in that miracle way that books can it became a number one bestseller and you know we just think well that those things are wonderful but for all those wonderful things, I will mourn the books, that many, many books that I believe in that have disappeared. And there's always that sadness. And um, one of the things about being a publisher is you have to go with it's kind of a grief and it's a sadness and a sense of failure. And 
you know, there's nothing you can do about it. The Risa Wrap-Up. Special thanks to Alexandra for sitting with me, taking the time, and sharing her life, her journey, and her thoughts on things that I value. Independence, leadership, freedom, creativity, growing, mentoring, sponsoring, helping people find their path, because ultimately, this helps us find ours. That's it for this week, audience. See you next time. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare, equity, and current trends. Our production team includes Stacey Gitlin, Dr. Giuliano DePorto, and me, Dr. Risa E. Lewis. Please find me on social media, at Risa E. Lewis, and through the website, thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us. Share the podcast with a friend today. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued.